It is with excitement that I get to share with you that the Leukaemia Foundation has developed a new resource. This resource is called the Online Support Service, where it provides a wealth of services to assist a person living with blood cancer throughout their patient journey. So whether you're a patient who has just been diagnosed, in treatment or in survivorship, this service provides access to targeted learning modules, a suite of amazing services and online programs. And you also have the ability to chat with an experienced blood cancer support coordinator at just one click. It gives people a personalised and intuitive way to learn about important topics, including what to expect beyond treatment. This service is simple to use and is filled with content curated by the Leukaemia Foundation for people with any type of blood cancer. It notably features a digital energy coach to help patients manage fatigue. So jump onto our website and look up our new and exciting product called the Online Blood Cancer Support Service. Hi, and welcome to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer. My name is Kate Arkadiff, and my role at the Leukemia Foundation is a blood cancer support coordinator. We provide emotional and practical support to people living with blood cancer and their loved ones. Our support is offered throughout the many different stages of a blood cancer journey. While listening to this podcast, we will share the stories of people we have connected with who have faced blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. The Leukaemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share the real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek the advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone or even if you would like more information on our services or on today's episode, please feel free to contact 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. So let's get into today's episode. In today's episode, you will meet the lovely Catherine Marshall. At the age of 24, the night before her wedding, she was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. She and her husband, Luke, from the moment they said I do, have truly tested the vow through sickness and in health. And love has always won. Throughout her story, you will hear how treatment and also survivorship truly tested her. And she learnt the importance of processing what she went through with her diagnosis and how that was so important for her recovery. So today I have the lovely Catherine Marshall here with me. And um, hi, Catherine, and welcome to the episode. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. 
That's okay. Well, thank you for being on and offering your time and story. So we usually start off each episode asking um, who they are, where they're from, um, who was in their family and what they were diagnosed with. Sure. So I'm Catherine Marshall. I uh, grew up in Toowoomba, but I now live in Gainder. So Gainder is about two hours south of Bundaberg, um, just a small township of about 2,000 people. Um, In my family, I've got my husband, Luke, and I've got two daughters. Madeline is three and Mackenzie is just about 11 months old. And I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2012. Wow. So So nine years ago. Nine years ago. Yep. Yep. And recently nine years ago. Recently nine years ago. Yeah. 11th of August, nine years ago. So. Wow. And what was happening nine years ago for you leading up to diagnosis? On the 12th of August, so the day after I was supposed to be married to Luke. So about a week before we were just sitting around the table and doing the usual jamming lollies in a box for the the guests. And I felt this big lump in my neck and I thought, oh, I should actually go and have this looked at because our honeymoon was to America for three weeks. Anyway, I trotted off to the doctor and then they sent me off for um, an ultrasound. And anyway, all all of a sudden everyone's gone a bit funny and I'm sitting at the hospital waiting for these test results. And then they come out and say, you need to go to your doctor straight away. Anyway, I went to the GP and then she said, yeah, I think you've got Hodgkin's lymphoma. I'm going to have to send you off to the specialists. And yeah, so instead of doing my week of wedding planning I spent my week of um, doing testing with different you know going to different general physicians and oncologists and PET scans and um, traveling from Toowoomba to Brisbane to have all that done and um, yeah that sort of thing so it was a pretty big time in my life and certainly not what I was expecting to say that the least (laughs) in the lead up to your wedding so did you end up then getting married Absolutely, absolutely. So my family, Luke's family, um, friends, they all pulled together. So bits and pieces like picking up the wedding dress, the flowers, the cake, um, all that sort of thing. You know, the day before the wedding, I was in Brisbane having the PET scan. Um, So I literally just couldn't, I just didn't have time to do any of that. So everybody else did everything for me. And yeah, the wedding went ahead. And it was the best day of my life. It was really, really good. And only a few people at the wedding knew about it. So I didn't feel like it was the elephant in the room. And, um, you know, it was really only a close family that kind of knew. So all my friends treated me the same. And, yeah, I just, I pushed it to one side. I I ignored it. I probably was in denial that day. (laughs) Yeah, I was about to say how, how you receive news like that and then go, of course, your wedding is something that you you look oh. forward to and many little girls dream of, you know, to, to be married and then to be able to hear that news and go, oh, here's my day and I need to push it to the side and, and well, enjoy it. it just, it, because I received the diagnosis at my rehearsal dinner the night before. So my close family and friends, um, we were all out at the pub in Toowoomba and I get the phone call and I've gone outside and Luke's obviously known by the look on my face what's happened. But know what it was but I just thought you know what stuff this I'm not letting this ruin my 
yeah, the day that I'd been looking forward to for a very long time. And Luke and I had met at school. We were best friends. We started going out on the last day of school. I think it took him like eight years to propose or seven years. And I thought, no, I've waited a long time for <laughs> so this. You weren't going to miss it. No, I wasn't going to miss it. So, yeah, I still really had a good day. I absolutely did. Absolutely. Just how old were you when you were diagnosed? Uh, I was 23, turning 24. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. So really young, really, yeah, really young. Yeah, I was young, a baby. I thought I was old at the time, but now that I'm turning 32 or 33, you do forget your age as you get older. You do, absolutely. Um, you know, I was, I was just a baby back then, yeah. Yeah. So you got married, you had that beautiful day. and I did. Did you get to go on your honeymoon or was uh, it straight into no, treatment? No, we went straight into treatment. So we cancelled the um, American dream, so to speak. Yeah. And the next week I went down to Brisbane, met with oncologists and started the IVF process in terms of saving eggs. So I was lucky enough to have that opportunity to do it yeah, beforehand. Yep, so we yeah. saved eggs and that sort of thing. And then on my birthday, the 12th of September, I started my first chemo treatment in Toowoomba. Wow, yeah, on your birthday. On my birthday, on my 24th birthday. Wow. I started treatment yeah. up there, so. Yeah, and how, how did you feel at that point starting treatment? Were you just kind of feeling like disassociated from all what was going on or were you, well, how, how was what I, was I guess going a kind of bit of, a bit of that in terms of, you know, why me? How has this all happened to me? Um, what did I do wrong? I never, I've never smoked in my life. I barely drank, you know, I've, I've done or tried to do well at school. I've done university. I've tried to be a good person. I've eat reasonably healthy because of celiac. It, um, yeah, I just was this, I guess I kind of felt ripped off. I was, yeah, yeah. In this phase of why me when, yeah, I felt like I hadn't done anything really that wrong but it's hard to rationalize because the doctors obviously don't know a cause for it and logically I understand that but still in my mind I'm thinking what what did I do to cause this so yeah I felt really ripped off (laughs) yeah and life was heading one way Life, yeah, you, you know, absolutely. It was going one way. You you were meant to, you know, go on, have your wedding, and then babies, and yeah, then, you know, your absolutely. career to flourish, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's been stopped in its tracks. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and I guess one of the hardest things is my life stopped in its in its tracks, and so did my husband's. But everybody else has still kept going. And, yeah. and that was hard, I guess, to watch because I was stuck in this one place with a risk of maybe not getting out of it. And um, yeah. that's hard, I guess, to digest as a 23, 24-year-old at the time. So, Absolutely. yeah. And you're so right, yeah, that you may not get out of it. And what, yeah. do, what does it look like? And I think as you, know, you and I have had conversations before of, of going through something like this and being the youngest in the room. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and, and you took those vows in sickness and he- in health, but they were really tested day, day one marriage. That, yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree with that statement because I always, I remember thinking at the time, poor, like, you know, poor me, but poor Luke, he didn't sign up for this. And he just sat by 
my bedside every single day I was in the hospital. He did not leave. He gave up everything for me and, you know, he didn't sign up to that. And, you know, I don't think I can ever thank him enough for that process um, that he went through and the, yeah, the sacrifices he made um, to get me better. It, um, yeah. yeah, it's truly moving that someone could do that for somebody else, really. Yeah. Yeah, it really, it's the depth, it showed the depth of his love oh, from the get-go. 100%, 100%, yeah. hey. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Very, very lucky yeah. to have him. Very lucky. Because you had treatment in Toowoomba, you said, and yes. then how how was that? Did that go well? Was that successful? So um, not successful, but it went well in terms of um, how I was feeling about it. So I'd only have... I'd have it in two-week cycles. I'd just go in once a fortnight. I'd have um, the combination of four different drugs and I'd be on my merry way. I'd feel sick for a week and then I'd actually go back to work for a week. Um, I did lose all my hair, but that didn't seem to phase anybody else other than me. (laughs) And um, How was that for you losing your hair? Well, it was, um, yeah, it was really upsetting. not that I would say that I'm a materialistic or, you know, I don't, I'm not a, I guess, doled up person, but I felt really self-conscious about it until I went into work and the youngest girl there, she came up to me and she's like, oh, and I thought, oh, she's going to say something about my hair. And she said to me, did you see the show Revenge last night? And she's treated me normally. And I will never, ever, ever forget that because she, she made me feel okay about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that I, I found that difficult. But at the end of the day, I soon learnt that hair is hair and it does grow back um, and it doesn't define me as a person at all. And I think it's the symbol. Yes. You know, yes. what it also yes. represents. Yeah. We, we can um, – Hair, hair is something that if if you've lost it, people might go, "Oh, what's yeah, what's going on?" That's and right. You, you're exposed. You, you are know? the and sick one. You become the sick person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you see your sickness as a vulnerability, you, your vulnerability is on display for everybody. Yes. Yep. And hundred um, percent. Yeah. So yeah, I um I didn't find that treatment too bad. I felt like I coped with it okay, and I could still lead a relatively normal life but after two treatments of that or maybe it was four um anyway after a few treatments of that I had the um, checkup PET scan and the cancer had just grown the lump was enormous and um the doctor had then feel it I could yeah yeah so it was in my neck and I could feel it like a little golf ball um at before I started treatment and I thought, oh, that's kind of a bit small, but the PET scan showed that it was all in my chest and in my neck. And anyway, the second PET scan had shown that it's grown a lot worse and I could feel it in my neck a lot bigger as well. Um, So, yeah. So how did you deal with that? Those thoughts of if you could feel something uh, and going, I'm on treatment, but this is still getting. I think I, I would say I'm a relatively optimistic person. So I don't know whether sometimes I ignored those sorts of signs. And I thought, oh no, it's all working. I'm doing the right things. Um, I certainly did that with all the symptoms. I explained them all away with different things. So, you know, I had itchy legs and I put that down to being, you know, dry to warmer weather. And I had night sweats and I put it down to just having the heater on too high at nighttime. And 
I lost weight and I thought, oh, well, I'm just, you know, maybe subconsciously wedding. stressed about my wedding or something. Yeah. I just explained them all away. And, you know, in hindsight, I probably, well, I did go to the doctor for a few of the symptoms, but, you know, they didn't connect the dots. But, you know, in hindsight, maybe I push, should have pushed further about. But, yeah, with, with the lump in the neck, I knew that it was getting bigger, but I probably was just in denial about it. I just thought, you know, I'm doing the right things and the treatment's working and, Let's just press on with this. But anyway, yeah. I was very wrong. <laughs> yeah, because then what unfolded after that PET scan? So after that, um, uh, my oncologist, James Morton, said that I needed to be closer to him um, and start a regime of drugs that was a lot um, harsher on the body than the drugs that I had had. And instead of a, you know, going one day a week on a two-week cycle, it would be upped to it would be stretched out on a three-week cycle but uh, for seven days for the first seven days of that three-week cycle I would have to take a chemotherapy um, either you know intravenously or um, through a tablet or something like that so every day for seven days I would have some form of chemo and that would vary you know from a couple of hours to an all-day affair kind of thing at the hospital it wasn't just like the tumor treatment that was just for a few hours sometimes it would go for eight hours straight or something like that um and then for the second two weeks I would just oh sorry for the yeah so the last two weeks I'd have a break but I would feel that terrible that half the time I'd end up back in hospital with an infection or um it was certainly it wasn't really a break no it was not a break at all and you might get um maybe two or three days at the end where you would feel I would say okay um, at best, but you'd start it all again the moment that it hit that new three-week cycle. So it it um, that certainly changed our lives because we had to shift from Toowoomba. We both left our jobs um, that we had at the time and we shifted into the Leukemia Foundation where you guys looked after us. So, yeah. Yeah. It, um, it was a really difficult time in, in our lives because – we had to leave everything that we know, pets and, you know, jobs and friends and sporting teams and all that yeah. sort of thing and, and come down to Brisbane for this sole purpose. And Luke, yeah, he had to come because I needed a carer 24-7. So, yeah, um, yeah, that was really hard. That was really hard. But you guys made us yeah, feel not- very welcome. <laughs> oh, very <I'm> welcome. <laughs> we are. Well, we were, We did always love seeing, you know, you walk through every day, no matter what. Um, no matter what, I'm sure, what the hospital presented you or what you, yeah. were, you were going through, you, you always walked through with a smile. Even Tried to. <laughs> you did. Even if it, if it was that full beaming smile that I can see now or even if it was just a half, a half smile, you always – you really did always give us that smile and um, your um, your attitude and your outlook throughout the entire time for us and from the outside was um, really incredible um, and inspiring to see. Oh, thank you. I tried. I tried to keep a positive outlook. I'm not sure whether I had I had it or not, but I tried to. <laughs> yeah. Because did you find any things within that that were? quite challenging like you said you had that more intense chemotherapy and did you go on to have a stem cell transplant uh, not or? a transplant but I did have my stem cells taken um so harvested so if I needed a transplant I could do that in the future um that 
Yeah, I did struggle with that process because it's a, um, you know, the needles that you've got to take to generate the stem cells to come out of your bone marrow. I recall them being really painful. Um, so you just, yeah, it was it was hard taking something that you knew would cause you so much pain. Um, but the stem cell harvest was a successful one, I think. Um, and that process wasn't too difficult in terms of um, collecting them. But yeah, luckily enough, my the ne that treatment that regime that I was on worked, so I didn't need to have a stem cell transplant. Thank God. So you've got them there for a rainy day. I do. Yes. Yes. Yeah. In a freezer down here in Brisbane or something. <laughs> wherever they are. <laughs> They're wherever they are. Wherever they so are. So how did you? You mentioned that you know it was really quite challenging for you and, and doing something that you know that it was injecting pain or was you know was would bring upon a physical effect how did you do that because I imagine you'd need to adapt something like that throughout your entire process of being on chemotherapy well at the start at the start it was fine um because I was just so keen to get it over with I was keen to get back to my normal life I was keen to just kick this cancer's butt and just get on with it but when you start to experience, you know, the first one and you're like, whoa, this is actually quite difficult to manage, it actually gets worse as the treatment gets longer. So it, the, the side effects just seem to compound one another and um, what seemed hard at the start is ultra hard by the end. And it was a struggle. I think if I didn't have someone as supportive as, as Luke saying, come on, you can do this, let's get going again. I think, yeah, I would have really struggled. And um, it would have been, I always think about people, like I said before, I, I would say I'm a relatively optimistic person. And it floored me, it really um, broke my spirit, I guess. And I think for someone who is not an optimistic person to begin with, I don't know how they get through and I really admire them because it is a real it is a big struggle and and yeah just the physical aspect of having the treatment of you know I felt I felt like I couldn't do anything for myself you know I struggled to you couldn't do the basic things of life you know go to the yeah, toilet was yeah, taken away. Uh, yeah absolutely you couldn't go to the toilet on your own you couldn't have a shower on your own. I, you know, I was a 24-year-old sitting in a bloody shower chair and, um, you know, laying on the bed because you'd run out of energy to dress yourself. So your husband's dress, you know, he was dressing me at 24 years of age. You know, I couldn't cook. I couldn't do the basics of cleaning or anything like that. It just, I, my, my independence and my ability to just do my basic care requirements went out the window and as a 24 year old I did I really struggled with that and yeah without someone like Luke I don't know how people get through it and I really I genuinely admire um, people who have to take on that challenge on their own or, or with a paid carer or something like that because I did I really relied on him to get me through those um, yeah those really difficult times mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you're so right. And it, I think you said so, so many beautiful points there that it's, you almost, as you say, you, you had to give yourself away and, and it almost surrender to the fact that you, you can't do this. And yes. I think so many people struggle to, to, to let that go. Cause I mean, who wants to admit that they can't shower themselves oh, or that absolutely. they need someone there and toileting. And I think, 
and I've, what I've witnessed and what I've seen, and I could I, I could be wrong, but it, once you surrender to it and just let it go to go, okay, I'm, I need, call in the help, I need the help, it does make that journey and, and that road just that little bit easier. It does. You it, can gain in that support. It does. And do you know what? When you are offered a meal, accept it. If you're offered help with the shopping, accept it. And and we did. And it made the journey a lot easier. You know, I had my sister bringing groceries um, when we needed them, or she would look after me while Luke would go get the groceries or just little things like that really do make it a lot easier. And you're right. When you surrender to the fact that you just can't do it. And I think the way you surrender to it is you surrender to the fact that it's I told myself this is temporary. This is not me. I will not let this beat me. Um, this is going to be a temporary thing. And I think that helped me to accept the state that I was in at that particular moment. And look, yep. to be honest, by towards the end of the treatment, I was just, I felt that ruined that I didn't even have time to worry about it anymore. You know, you just laid mm. there just staring at the wall because you felt so sick to even pick up your phone and have a look at Facebook or to play a game. You just did not even have the energy to think or to do anything as minor as that. So I guess as time pressed on, I did feel physically um, and emotionally that drained that by the end of it, it was a forced acceptance too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that it, how you've voiced it and how you've been so open with us I think that it's a really good insight to care for carers as well because you hear that oh they just don't have the motivation they just don't want to do it and they're banging their head against the wall because they're trying to you know consistently keep you up and get you motivating but to hear as you've said you actually your soul was broken yes and you just didn't have physically and mentally you didn't have anything else to give and for you to say it's also temporary, I think that's the key messaging as well is that this too shall pass. And um, Yeah, I agree. And it's so funny that you say that about the carers because I always – it's definitely difficult as a patient, but at the same time I think it would be so much worse to be a carer of a loved one going through that. And you're right, I think there was – at the beginning, you know, an expectation or not an expectation of all of Luke on himself to, you know, bring me up and that sort of thing. But you do as a carer, you've got to learn to accept that this is really bad and it, it physically um, hurts them and breaks them. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how he sat there and watched me in that state, to be honest, but he did. And I, I take my hat off to carers because that is an impossible job that obviously needs to be done. But yeah, it's just that, I guess that being there if I did need something. And yeah, I guess Luke knew me well enough that he knew when to leave me alone and that sort of thing. But he also knew when to say, okay, you have to eat something or you have to do this and I will help you. Yeah. It, um, yeah, I, I genuinely take my hat off to carers. I really do. Yeah, so, so do I. And I read this, I read this quote, and it says like that to anyone that cares about you and 
then that sorry to anyone that connects and cares about you, it truly just makes a world of difference. And I think that, as you've said, whether it's physically or mentally, but just to know that you've got someone there, that is mm, still just definitely. such an important connection to having that can help you where I hear carers going, I just don't know what to do, but just being there and being that cheerleader to go, I'm going to stand with you in this space and we're going to get through it. That's right. That sometimes just enough. Just being there in the next room, knowing that if I call out to him, he was there. That is all I needed. I didn't need to be entertained. I didn't need to be and, you know, Paul, he probably needed to be entertained. I don't know what he did yeah. all those days. But, yeah, it's just, you're right, it's just being there. That's, that's what we need. That's yeah. absolutely what so we you, need. how did you get past that? Like as you said, that your soul was broken, you'd hit rock bottom. Um, how, how? I guess it went started, it started with the appointment, well, it started with the last chemotherapy, really, because it is a bit of a... It's a huge achievement. It's, thank God I don't have to take this stuff again. Um, And it did start with that, but it's not easy. Um, We did go home. We went back. We got the news that I was in remission. And I did. I thought it was going to be all fantastic and I'd go back to my old life. And, um, but you're right. My soul was broken and it stayed broken for a very long time. And it took a lot of work to get it back. And, I guess what helped me was I had this new life imposed on me and I didn't know why or what I did to deserve it. And I got stuck in that whole, I'm in this, you know, I'm in this cycle of what did I do wrong? Why me? Why did I have to go through all of this? I just got caught back up in that cycle. How do I fix this? I can't do the things that I used to. How do I get my old life back? So I, I, I saw a psychologist after it all because I actually could not work out myself how to get, how to be my happy self again. I couldn't get my old self back again. That's what I was upset about the most. I'd lost my old life and I felt like I'd lost myself. And so I went and saw a psychologist and she politely showed me and it worked for me it may not work for others but on a pie graph so I described my old life you know I had a flourishing career that I did most of the time of a night time I was heavily involved in um, sporting activities netball and touch football on the weekend it was socializing it was hobbies it was you know the movies shopping Luke it was those sorts of things and that had been replaced with this new life and that new life on the pie chart I had replaced working for sleeping because I couldn't, I didn't have enough energy to do anything. I'd replaced my, um, you know, nighttime netball and socializing and that sort of thing with doctor's appointments. And I'd had this very, very, very small slice of my pie chart that I filled with the things that I used to enjoy, but a very, very small portion. A slither. A very (laughs) slither. So... When I looked at it like that, I thought, no wonder I'm unhappy. No wonder I feel crushed by life in general. And no wonder I feel down and sad all the time. And so she just gave me a few strategies to improve what I felt to be my quality of life. And that is, you know, coming to her and inventing 
you know, the things that I needed to vent. And it was, yes, my small slither was small, but I could increase that slowly. So, you know, start getting out and doing my hobby or not even getting out because I didn't feel like I could go out, you know, do my hobbies at home, um, you know, scrapbooking or something like that. And take you had all those short, wedding, beautiful yeah, wedding photos. That's right. That's right. Plan my next honeymoon. You know, yeah. um, take short um, walks just to try and build my stamina back up again. Succumb to the tiredness um, for the moment. Accept that you will need to recover, and just be at peace with that. And that will slowly. You won't be a tired. Well, I feel like I am tired now, but certainly nowhere near as tired as what I was when I came out of treatment. I would not be that tired forever. So as soon as I learned to, I guess, accept um, my new normal and put in place certain things that I could do to try and reduce um, the times that I was sleeping or at doctor's appointments and increase my little slither that, you know, had hobbies and the things that I used to enjoy, life became... Um, much better not easier it was not easier but a lot better and I do remember a nurse happiness get inserted did more happiness get yes it did yes it did yeah yeah so once I'd accepted all of that and that it was again a temporary thing and that I had the power to change all of it yeah happiness did get did come along it um it naturally came with it because we as humans like to control, you know, many of us like yes, power yes. control, plan <laughs> and be in that driver's seat. And I think that blood cancer is it is one of the many things in life that unfortunately takes you out of that driver's seat and you are in the back and the doctors are in the front and they are driving and illness is driving it. And I think when people return home or treatment you know, we'll say finish, but it we know that it doesn't quite finish post That's right. see you later cycles are done. Um, that you you have yeah, you have to be able to get A the trust back in your body to to come back into the driver's seat. And then also, yeah, as you say, that acceptance of okay, I used to be able to go sixty kilometers or out an hour, but now I'm just I need I can go thirty. Yes, yes. And it's yeah. <laughs> And I do remember a nurse saying that to me during treatment. She said, you know, here's a a pamphlet about um, depression. You know, you might experience this afterwards. I remember throwing it in the bin. I thought, how on earth would I be depressed after I was cured from cancer? That's so silly. Um, I would be having this massive celebration and my life would be amazing because do you know what? I'm this young and I beat a terrible illness. But she was exactly spot on. And I just didn't expect it to hit me as hard as it did. And I'm thankful that I had the help around me to, I guess, recognize that I wasn't me anymore and that I needed to do things to to get me back, my happy, go lucky self again and not not let this affect um, my emotions, I guess, my mental state. Absolutely. And I think also what happens is is that you become – you, as much as you want to be able to gain control back, there's no subscription or prescription, I should say, sorry, as to how to gain happiness back. You've gone through treatment where it's regimented. You turn up, you do this, you do that, and hopefully this will be the result. But in that next stage post-treatment and returning to the new normal, it's all guided by you 
and the yes. motivation comes from you. And happiness, as cliched as it is, can only be found within you. That's right. And like you say, when you're going through the treatment process, you're, you're dragged along for the ride. You know, here's your next appointment. Here's your, you're coming in the next day. You'll be seeing the doctor on this day. You'll be having a scan on that day. You're getting your stem cells taken out on that day. This is the needle you have to take that day. And this is the tablet that you take this day. Please don't forget. If you have an infection, you need to come. So you're dragged along for that whole process. And then you get home and Luke went back to work and I'm sitting on my own all day and I can't do anything because I don't have enough energy to do anything. And that's when you start thinking about it all. And then you realized, I realized kind of how traumatized I was from the whole experience and, and how, and, and I guess lost just how do I get myself back? And you're right, the motivation comes from you and it doesn't come from the doctors because you're not seeing them every day anymore. Yeah. And that that is one of the hardest parts of this journey, I think, as well, that needs to, yeah. I guess, be focused on um, more, more, yeah. definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really agree because we're, we're wonderful at supporting, I would say, people through treatment but as we're seeing and treatments are getting better and people are surviving longer and thriving longer is that there's still a lot of trauma that's A, gone on for somebody um, with a diagnosis, but then also the side effects yes. are, are forever, are forever yes. lasting um, through that. They are. And I guess when I first had come out, I was still experiencing you know, a lot of side effects in terms of, you know, I'd had the radiation and I'd had the burning to the chest and um, my saliva, st like I stopped producing saliva and, you know, your arm hairs don't, oh, wow. don't grow and just funny things like that. And I had the, um, I think it's called neuropathy, the pins and needles in your fingers yep. and your toes. So that lasted for a very long time. And then I had difficulties with my immune system afterwards. So I'd always get any bug that came you know floating past me I seemed to get and I had the shingles a few times and ended up in hospital from being that run down even though I was doing nothing at home I was that run down so for a while there I was experiencing a lot of symptoms um, from different things but I still blamed the fact that I had cancer that's what's led to all of this so, um, you know, and in some way you're right, your, your yeah. immune system was weakened, but, but it's that collateral damage, isn't it? That it's still, it is. it's still there. And yeah. And, you know, the checkups are more frequent, um, you know, immediately after. And, you know, I was on an infusion of a drug to help boost my immune system once a month. And, um, yeah, that continued for a while. And, you know, you still had your portacath in, in my chest. So, it was kind of a constant reminder that, you know, and that was stayed in for a couple of years after and it's, you know, well, is this a just in case thing or, um, you know, you do. Question. You do and you have those little things, the bits and pieces, you know, the scars on your neck from where they took the biopsy and that sort of thing initially, you know, you notice all of those things immediately after. So it doesn't really matter how much of a distress Distraction you put in front of yourself on any particular day immediately after you finish that treatment you're reminded about it in some way shape or form and even your hair growing back that takes a long time too so it does it's not just a this is the end date of your treatment and you're all better it takes years it takes years to feel 
okay again. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think you're right. It's it's also giving yourself permission to go, I I can't bounce back bounce back to who I was instantly. That's yeah. right. And that and that it does take time. But I think as you and I are sitting here today, I'm sure you would say you're not the same Catherine that was diagnosed nine years ago, but you are at a point where I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're you're within acceptance and happy. Yes, yes. Again, as to where your life definitely has, yeah, landed you today. Absolutely. So, for me, when I was 23, 24, I was so career focused. I was working long hours. I was really driven um, in that way, and you know, I never used to notice the little things in life and. Now that I've got myself to a point, I am a different person, but I'm happy with the person that I've become. And, you know, I don't, I don't value money anymore. I don't value careers. I value time with my family and time with my husband. And I just, my priorities in life really changed Mm -hmm. and changed for the better. And, you know, whilst the cancer was a very bad experience that it did that for me and I just yeah it's really hard to describe but I just feel like I'm a I'm an old soul I feel like having cancer at 24 aged my soul and so the things that our parents and grandparents value um, I feel like those are the things that I value now and I just I feel different from the people my own age I'm I never went back into this party scene and let's go out and get drunk. And I just went into this, yeah, I just want to live a quiet, simple life, simple, happy life and spend time with my family and friends. And above all, that is the thing I value the most because I think after an event like this, you realize that time is the most precious commodity that people have that's the thing that we should value the most and people never look back and think I wish I had worked more (laughs) they always say I wish I had more time with my family so that for me is a real focus now and to be honest I'm not sure if I would have been like that if I hadn't have gotten sick and hadn't had that experience in my life I'm not sure if I would have appreciated the sunsets and appreciated the quiet you know, country lifestyle. Yeah. I'm not sure that would have been me. It's right. Until you're exposed to something, it doesn't give you sometimes the opportunity to see things in a different light. Yes. And almost, it sounds like that's what this, you know, the blood cancer journey did for you. Yes. That you were able to it did. see things in a different light. And, and as you're right, as a 24-year-old, many people aren't, they're, they're not thinking along that way. Uh, but for you, that's what was, that's the card that was, it was dealt for you and Luke as well. Yes. And yeah. I guess at, like, when I first finished my treatment, I did really struggle with the little, having that different perspective <laughs> in terms of, you know, if someone would have a cold and they'd say, oh, I'm sick. I'd think to myself, no, you're not. You're not sick. You don't even know what sick is. <laughs> you know, these poor people down here in these cancer treatment rooms, they, they know what sick is. But at the same time, it's also learned, it's also taught me that, yes, I have a different perspective from other people, but they have a different perspective from me. And 
our life experience is what shapes us as human beings and this is just the thing that's happened in my life that has led me to yeah really appreciate the value of life and and that sort of thing so it, it, it I did struggle with it at the start but I'm okay with it now I honestly yeah. think time is the biggest healer I really do time I've I used to think about this all the time and cancer consumed my thoughts post well during the treatment but post immediately post and now that I've got a family and I've got my kids and um you know time I think really heals all things I don't feel my neck 50 times a day for a lump anymore and if I get an itchy leg I'm not automatically thinking oh my god I've got my cancer back time I've I haven't forgotten about it. It helps rebuild that trust, doesn't it? It helps rebuild that trust in your body. Yes, that's right. You don't forget about it, but you become um, somewhat at peace with it. Mm. They talk about grief, and I think that blood cancer is somewhat – we do have to grieve what life was and uh, there's this image of a ball, a tennis-sized ball, and at first it's in a really small jar and it feels very consumed, you know, it consumes the whole entire glass jar. But then as time goes on, it, it shows these images of the glass getting bigger but the ball staying the same and it's almost yes. like you you grow with it yes. and you you grow to adapt to what, you know, what you're now carrying through life. And that is such a good way to describe it because it is it seemed like this giant ball and now it's just yeah it's It's there it's a marble you know it's tiny it's tiny now it's not my life anymore yeah and you almost have to give that you you almost have to let go of the power of that you know to not allow it to consume your life and I think you beautifully said you know you got a psychologist you tapped into a support team and also your own resilience and your, you know, your own happiness and to overcome that. It's, um, it's not something that just lands in your lap. It's, it's unfortunately more hard work. Yes, it is. But I, th- that the psychologist I saw, she was honestly worth her weight in gold because she was a real turning point for me. And I know sometimes there's a bit of a stigmatism around mental health and that sort of thing, but there shouldn't be and I actively tell people that I've seen this psychologist and she helped me and that sort of thing because I don't know what I would have done without her it is all about tapping into that support and just having that other person to say to you it's normal what you're going through this is not unique in your situation it is quite a common um, thing that happens to people who've been through some sort of treatment and the biggest thing that she said to me was be kind to yourself. And I just thought it's so true because I just sat there beating myself up in my head going, what have I done? Did I eat this thing that, you know, gave this to me? You know, that sounds so silly, but, you know, why did I deserve this? And I, I, I went around in circles about that particular point a lot. And when she just said, you know, you need to, be at peace with it and be calm about it and be kind to yourself, you know, accepting it just made a whole lot of difference in my life. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's like when you're a parent and you've got kids that don't sleep, as soon as you accept that you're never going to get a good night's sleep, it seems okay. You seem a lot better, yeah. you know? It, yeah. Um, 
your yeah. focus is shifting instead yes. of focusing on yes. it and, and as we said, letting it consume you. Or Again, that word surrendering and becoming at peace with it, it, it sits differently in your soul it, and it, yes. it goes on a, in, in a different energy scale where it's it's a calm and it's not you're not racing to find the answer but you're calm within yourself to go okay it is what it is so be let it be um that's right and i think the way that i know that i am at peace with it and that my soul is whole again is that i can i can talk about this and feel sad but I can talk about it without bawling my eyes out like I used to. Mm. You will get to a point where you can talk about it and you can be okay talking about it. But previously, whenever I've talked about it, you know, a few years, even, you know, five years after it all happened, I would be a blubbering mess and I'd say, oh, I don't want to talk about this anymore. But I feel okay with it now. I'm still... I still don't like the fact that I went through it, but I'm okay with it now. I'm at peace with it. Yeah. So. And you had um, definitely some key supporters you named, Luke, as, you know, yeah, your hero did. throughout this time. Absolutely. But then you had your amazing family as well behind you, didn't you? I did, yeah. My family and Luke's family were just phenomenal, you know. I had... Yeah. My sister, like I said, dropping off groceries. I had my other sister. She shaved her head and raised money. And um, she texted me, I think, every single day. And I had my brothers and my parents checking in on me. And I had Luke's parents, you know, walking. They're from the country and don't like driving in the city. I had them walking four kilometres for, you know, a boost juice or a frozen Coke or some, you know, something that was really strong in flavour to get the metal taste out of my mouth. I had his aunties and uncles coming, sitting with me, you know, at my bedside in the hospital, holding my hand while they're taking my stem cells. I had his cousins drop in. I had friends. I had so many people and that was my village of people that really, really got me through. And, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful, so thankful to them for that. Mm. So thankful. Yeah. Welcome the village. Don't shut the village out. Oh, gosh, no. You accept that help because mm. you need it. And just yeah. the visitors. Sometimes I wouldn't even go out of the bedroom because I didn't feel well enough for the visitors. But the visitors helped Luke. You know, mm. they he had an opportunity to see somebody else other than mm. the sick wife in the bed, you know. He had the opportunity yep. to have a normal conversation with someone. Mm. And for that, I was truly grateful because, you know, I was thought, oh, thank God, it's given him something to do, yeah. you know. Yeah, so absolutely. So they were caring for him too. Yeah. Which he, yeah, which all carers need. He needed. Yeah. Carers need to be yeah. cared for too. Absolutely. So you mentioned that you've got two beautiful girls now, which is just so amazing do, to hear. Very lucky. How was that IVF process? And I, and what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes going back into a medical world can be quite triggering. So it, I guess, it was quite difficult because after I had finished the cancer, I then became consumed with the IVF process. And the IVF process is, is difficult because um, statistically speaking, it's not exactly that successful. Um, I think it's only about a 40% chance from memory that 
you know, a decent um, embryo would actually work. So, you know, we obviously had a few tries and, and that didn't work and that sort of thing. Luckily enough, it did in the end. But yeah, that that's also life consuming, I think. And mm-hmm. um, you're on the hormonal medication to make it all work. So that obviously doesn't help you your situation because no. you're very up and down because you had to reinduce hormones didn't you correct that's right yeah. yeah because the chemotherapy had put me into menopause so it was going from no hormones at all which you know was I was up and down with that to introducing a full body of hormones with tablets and needles and that sort of thing it, it was very um probably a shock to the old system <laughs> And to Luke, and no doubt. And to Luke, who was very patient <laughs> yet again. Um, but, yeah, that, that whole process, it's hard. And it is also one that people don't talk about. People don't really talk about the IVF process. And do you know what? At the time, I didn't either. I, was, I saw a separate mm-hmm. psychologist for that because I was really struggling with that whole scenario. You know, friends of mine were popping out kids left, right and centre and I was so happy for them. But at the same time, I was so jealous. I wanted my own. Mm-hmm. And yep. so that I never told anyone that though because I didn't want to have to talk to them when it didn't work. Like I just yeah. bottled that up that if I had the egg transfer and it didn't work, well... I dealt with that myself and I didn't have to tell anyone. But in hindsight, you know, that was very different as to how you dealt with correct, correct. And I just saw a psychologist in secret. And, you know, now that I've got my two beautiful girls, I'm very open about it now. So, but that's because I felt alone when I did it. And I don't want people to feel alone when they have to do this IVF process. Um, but I don't know why I did it like that. I don't know why I kept it all to myself and kept it quiet because I'm not like that now. I'm, I'm advocate for people if they wanted, if they want to have children, there are so many ways to do it now and to go and go out and fight for what you want. And so I am very passionate about that, but I just don't know in hindsight, I should have spoken about it when I was going through it, but I never did. But it's almost like, as we said before, that it's not until you experience something or you get through it and you go, it, it gives you that your rose-coloured glasses are taken off or you're given a different coloured, you know, That's glasses right. to wear. And now you understand, you go, well, actually, if I was open about it and reached out yes. and connected, yes. it may have made it, it, it would have changed and made things easier. Yes, that's so right. That's right. The lesson in what you've learned is, again, to call in that village. And I think it's a, it's a common thing it's a common theme that says to have that, that that support around you, no matter what the topic is, yes. is so helpful. And that's the thing is that if you've got, if you've got a particular issue and for me, it was having children after having cancer treatment, the brochure may not be given to you at the hospital, like the depression brochure was given to me, but it's so important that it, you're not the only one. You are not the only one that's been through this difficulty. And chances are if they ask someone like you guys or um, GPs or psychologists or the oncologist or whoever it is, they will point them into the right direction. And it's so important to ask for that support because, you know, if I didn't take those steps, I wouldn't have my kids now. Mm. I don't know whether I would be happy or not, but I know I wouldn't have my kids and they mean 
the absolute world to me. So it's, yeah, it is important to draw on that village and those support networks because someone has been through this before. There is a process and there is help. Yep. I remember someone saying to me once when I was, you know, going through trying for babies and whatnot, and they said, um, you're not that special. You're not that special that this has only ever happened to you. Oh, yeah. And I think that that's it's really true and it, it, it makes you feel less alone. At first I was like, oh, I'm not that special. But to go, there's someone else out there that's walked this path yes, too absolutely. and has got through that other side. And, um, yeah. And I, I think the that. thing with IVF is it also can be, it's so emotionally challenging and because it is that, you know, you get your eggs taken. How many eggs am I going to get? How, how many is going to fertilize? How many of those fertilized eggs are going to grow into embryos? How many are going to survive that It's almost that like your counts and your blasts yes. and your, yes. your skin. And then you have the egg, you know, the embryo put in. Is that going to work? So that is, takes an emotional toll. But it also takes a financial toll. It's very expensive. And I think the thought for a lot of people is this is how much money I've got and this is this is all I can afford. And that can be quite scary. But I know now they offer all sorts of things, you know, bulk billing IVF clinics Mm -hmm. and that. So there is options out there for people who have been or are in this position. And it's Mm -hmm. just a matter of asking the question. Absolutely. And there's the Sony Foundation too now um, that has been started up and they uh, they have some fantastic support in regards to fertility for oh, young people great. and and financial support. So that is um, an amazing um, avenue as well. Great. So. I didn't know about that actually. That's so good. <laughs> yeah. Well, Catherine, you have just shared such a wealth of knowledge and I've really enjoyed um, speaking with you today and you know, sitting back and actually hearing, you know, I've supported you through all those years that you were down at the village, but to be able to have a conversation with you like this has been um, really, uh, I've, I've felt really privileged to be able to have this with you tonight. So thank oh, you. Thank you. Honestly, uh, yeah, it's just one small thing that I can do that might reach somebody else in my position that, yeah, I don't know. Like, like I said before, the hard, one of the hardest things I found was, um, yeah, I was the youngest in the room. I didn't really know anybody else my age that had had it. And, it, yeah, yeah I, I know I'm not the only one, but it is a, well, I guess a, it's a good cancer to have, but a, I think a more rare one to have. Yeah. And so if I can just reach one other person, um, that would be worthwhile, I think. Well, I'm sure you have. And is there any nuggets that you would like to, Louise always say, the golden nuggets? Are there any golden nuggets that you would like to leave with the listeners? Um, I probably said them all, but I guess um, my main ones would just be be kind to yourself. It's hard, but it's worth it. Life is good. Your new normal can be good with the right attitude. And time Give yourself time because time heals all wounds. It really does. And like you said, it will become this, it will go from this big giant tennis ball in a jar to just a marble. It would just be one part of your life. And yeah, life is worth living. It absolutely is. Perfect. It really is life. Life can be dark, but life can be really beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. And 
this moment of darkness has just come a little bit early for people like me and you know I'm looking forward to a life of light from here on in (laughs) absolutely absolutely well thank you so much um I can't thank you enough no thank thank you you. you're most welcome thank you (laughs) thank you for tuning in today I'm Kate Arkadiff and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast Talking Blood Cancer